0: In session with dr. Fadid Hulakou good evening welcome to in session I'm your host dr. Fadi Hulakou and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra on Instagram live for the show so we're not taking any calls uh, I'll get into the books of the week For this week, the book of the week is Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Um, Marcel Proust is known as one of the great writers, maybe greatest writers of uh, the 20th century. And this book um, is one of a series of books called... uh, in Search of, as I'm looking for the title, In Search of Lost Time. And it's seven volumes. I don't know if I'm going to read all seven volumes, but in the book I'll talk about tonight, he discussed Marcel Proust, or it was, he was discussed as a author who really um, had a lot of depth in what he describes in his novels. And this is considered one of the greatest novels uh, of all time. And it's considered one novel altogether, uh, but this is the first part, Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. And so the book i was talking about which i will discuss tonight is the school of life an emotional education uh introduced by alan de Botton. and so alan de botton i'm not sure i even say his name but he's a philosopher and he has helped create this collective called the school of life which includes philosophers psychologists and people from other disciplines that um, one of their aims i didn't know is actually to promote psychotherapy which I think is great. I kind of looked up the organization. They have uh, at least 10 centers around the world. Um, But really School of Life, they are trying to basically teach us what we need to know. And as he talks about early in the book, uh, sometimes this word School of Life, we think of it meaning that um, the things that life teaches us, through hard experiences, which is true, and only life can teach them alone, but also that we are in school our whole lives. In that, sometimes we think of school as something okay, I'm finished because I did, uh, you know, K through 12 or college or whatever we did. But really, uh, and I wholeheartedly agree with this, we should think of ourselves as being in school our whole lives. That we should always be learning. In the traditional academic sense, but as this organization is emphasizing also in the sense of how to live, uh, as it says, an emotional education, those aspects of life as well. I would highly recommend on YouTube, either seeing talks by Alan de Baton himself, or the School of Life has a YouTube page, uh, and they have these really great short videos, sometimes eight, nine minutes long on different topics with animation, and it's quite... Uh, interesting and entertaining to watch. So you can check those out. And uh, what I saw in the book is a lot of the talks I saw him give, even though he wrote the book, I think in collaboration with these other uh, writers and thinkers, you see a lot of his fingerprints throughout the book and things he says in his his talks. So one thing to begin with, as I mentioned, is um, he, he talks about in the introduction how we think of school and the things that school can teach us. Usually it's things in elementary school for children, but then also things like a a certain trade or becoming a lawyer or doctor, but we don't think about things like our emotional intelligence or um, love life, parenting, those types of things, or even really how just to be a person. And so we should think about that aspect of life, how we can make sure we don't lose sight of the importance of learning those things. And something I've talked about before is well, sometimes think about being a parent or being in love, and we think, well, it's just natural. And he talks about this kind of romantic ideal that isn't just natural to love, isn't it natural to want to be a mother or a father, which it can be? The desire can be natural, but being good at it or knowing how to do it right or well is not just something we naturally know how to do automatically without thinking. And so um, that's something I wholeheartedly agree with as well, that we shouldn't think of just the fact that because we're attracted to someone and we want to be in love or want to be in a romantic relationship, that that necessarily means we know how to do it. And I think if I had to describe some of what I see in this book and the philosophy is a humanistic realism, uh, humanistic in that it's valuing human beings at our core and that we can have these uh, you know, beautiful things that we can recognize in one another, but the realism also in that we all have weaknesses, shortcomings. As he puts it, we're all a little bit crazy, and that's okay. And I'm going to read a a paragraph talking about how really it's the ones that kind of understand their craziness that are the most sane, but no one is really not insane at all. And that theme of the realism shows up throughout the book that covers a few themes like the self, others, uh, relationships, work, and I think culture is the last section. Um, And the realism is very important because it makes us recognize that we have to know what to expect from something in order to really have a healthy relationship with it, even if it's ourselves, even if it's marriage, even if it's someone else. Because um, when we think of being disappointed or even being really mad, underneath that is an unmet expectation. So if you're You know, we don't go to restaurants anymore these days. Hopefully again soon if you're at a restaurant, you get mad at the staff. It's because you're expecting better service. If you get mad at your parents, it's because they've disappointed you. They've done something uh, that you don't like or you expect more from them, which can be important to express, but also to recognize how much our unrealistic expectations could get us into trouble, uh, which I'll talk about more. And related to that, so I mentioned how he says we're all insane and there's a little small section here called sane insanity and i'll read you a a short part of that so he says what separates the sane insane from the simply insane is the honest personable and accurate grasp they have on what is not entirely right with them they may not be wholly balanced but they don't have the additional folly of insisting on their normalcy they can admit with good grace and no particular loss of dignity that they are naturally deeply peculiar at myriad points they do not go out of their way to hide from us what they get up to and they that they get up in the middle hide from us what they get up to in the night in their sad moments when anxiety stri- strikes or during attacks of envy they can at their best be dryly funny about the tragedy of being human And so I really like that um, mindset of recognizing we're all a little bit strange, a little bit peculiar. All of us are insane in some ways, and that's okay. So we have to have a realistic expectation even of ourselves and of course of others as well, which means that we have to accept that we're all a little bit crazy, a little bit messed up. So if I work with a family and a mother or a father tells me, um, I've been a perfect mom, I've been a perfect dad that scares me much more than if they can acknowledge some flaws. Because when someone tells me they're a perfect mom or dad, all it tells me is that they're imperfect because everyone is, but they just have no idea about how they are imperfect or what their weaknesses are as a parent, which means that when those weaknesses show up, they're not going to be aware of them. And if the son or daughter complains about them, they're only going to think it's on them. Well, I'm a perfect mom or dad, so you're the one with the problem. Either you're weak or you have some issue. It's not about me that I have the weakness. So I really like that mindset of recognizing, look, we all have issues. We're all imperfect. That's not only okay, it's actually good, and we can even Uh, laugh about it or have fun about it, but we don't have to pretend to be perfect. And so I think that's a very, very important message. One that sounds simple and in a way it is, but is very powerful. Because if we recognize that we're all not okay, then we can actually be closer to one another. Because if I have to put on this sense that I'm perfect and you are perfect, none of us have problems. The only way we can keep that up is by keeping distance, both physically and also psychologically, because if we stay too close long enough, we're inevitably going to see that there are some weaknesses, imperfections, some quirks, Uh, and then psychologically in the sense that we can't be that open with one another because we all suffer, we all struggle. The analogy I sometimes use when we think of this is imagine if everyone thought you know sleeping is bad it's this thing people would not talk about and we should all act as if we never sleep because being awake it's more productive it's good we can get things done being asleep is just a waste of time so if we had that kind of a mindset we'd all go around pretending to each other what did you do last night well from 3 a.m to 6 a.m i was reading and then from 6 a.m to 8 i did this and then you know just went, uh, now I'm here at the office, and vice versa, you would share your story, so we'd be lying to one another, not telling the truth, and we wouldn't be able to spend time with each other. I think, okay, well, if this person is at my house, my friend, family, whoever it is, they're going to see that I want to sleep late at night, so... I have to have them leave or get away from them in some way. So it creates more distance when we don't allow ourselves to accept the reality of what it means to be human, which means to be imperfect. Something that, uh, again, we all might know, no one would say, no, we should pretend we're perfect, but it's something important to acknowledge in our daily life. Because that also means you're allowed to not be happy. There's a concept called toxic positivity, which is essentially this notion that we, although it sounds good, that we're trying to promote or say that you should be happy all the time. Why would you be sad? There's so much to be grateful for. Why would you be sad? Uh, Being sad will just ruin your day. No one wants to be around someone who's sad. So put yourself in a good mood. All you have to do is smile. All these things in a way can sound good, but they take away the realism of being human and make us feel bad for not feeling good all the time, which is impossible. And also what we recognize is, yes, sharing good times can be very meaningful and help bring us together. But when we usually bond closely with someone, it's because we're able to share the not so pleasant feelings or moments of our life. The people that we're closest to, we share those things, and it's through sharing those things that we get closer as well. So I like that mindset to begin with, recognizing that, you know, in a way, don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, Know that you're imperfect, and that's okay, everyone is. And we can actually love each other more if we don't pretend like we're perfect, let go of some of those pretenses, and just let ourselves be ourselves more. So you know the book covers topics, like I said, about the self, how we look at ourselves. So even there, we can see that the more we recognize that we don't need to be perfect, the easier it becomes even to love yourself and the easier it becomes to even understand yourself. Oftentimes in therapy, of course, the process is one of the ways to bring about self-awareness or one of the goals can be that. And very often we get to these points where the client might feel an uneasiness about seeing what is there about themselves, what desires they might have, envies, jealousy, uh, anger towards family members. Oh no, I can't be angry at my parents. They did so much for me. So they don't want to even acknowledge that it might be there. But if we can accept this notion of our imperfection that there are some things about us that are unpleasant or maybe we wish we're not that way but that's okay we actually will have an easier time of letting ourselves understand ourselves better and understanding others as well and uh, the book is really full of lots of wisdom and actually one of the last things it talks about is wisdom and you know it talks about relationships and being open with one another but how the romantic, notion we have, I consider myself a romantic, but not necessarily in the sense of seeing things in this way. We think, well, when you find that soulmate, as Eric Fromm talks about in The Art of Loving, when you find uh, just the right object to love, love becomes easy. And even that book has a similar. We could say theme that love is an art that you have to work on, develop, study. Same thing with life. We shouldn't just think we're ready for it. Uh, but in that, the chapters related to love and relationships, um, it talks about our expectations and how they can get us into trouble. How imagining that one person will always make us feel good, will always understand us, will always be on the same page with us. It's just not realistic. Your partner will sometimes drive you crazy. Your partner will sometimes not understand you. And that's okay. You can still have a very healthy and happy relationship with all those things. And really, every relationship has those things. Um, There's this theme of good enough throughout the book. He actually talks about it more specifically near the end, which comes from Donald Winnicott's theme of good enough mother basically that you don't need to be a perfect mom you can't be uh, all you need to be is a good enough one and that's going to be enough for your child to be raised in a healthy way and in a lot of life that's what we have to recognize there's no perfect the perfect really is the enemy of the good both in that it sometimes prevents us from doing something and also that it prevents us from recognizing the good that we are actually experiencing so often we need to strive for good enough and recognize that's at times the best it could be. Um, But the chapters on relationships I found interesting looking at how we can try to see our partner in a different way. They're going to disappoint you. And really anyone you choose is going to have some issues. When you choose a partner, you're choosing a set of problems, but you just have to find the set of problems that seem the best for you, that also there's some strengths that you like, but that you can handle. And speaking of strengths, he does talk about how almost every strength has a counterpart weakness that really we have to accept as a whole. So you might like that someone is so fun and spontaneous, and that's something that draws you to someone, but you have to be ready that that same fun, spontaneous person at times might feel to you a little unpredictable or unorganized. And that might at other times stress you out, but you can't have one without the other. A lot of these things come as a whole. They have two sides. So I thought that was a, a very interesting one. And, uh, you know, I'll kind of leave it at that. The book, as I mentioned, so much um, wisdom in it. I really, when I've seen him speak, Alan de Baton, he's so funny when he talks. I really appreciate his humor. And part of his humor is in this kind of cynical, but in a opt might sound funny but cynical but in an optimistic way and that he sees like the negative but makes it seem that it's not so bad and actually it's okay um, so I'd recommend watching his talk school of life seeing some short videos um, on different topics but this book as well lots of information and knowledge in there the school of life an emotional education introduced by Alan de Baton um, hope you'll check it out let's go to a commercial break we'll be right back Back. Uh, so, I wanted to talk about something that I do every year. It's my top 10 books of the year. Um, last year, as is always the case, I read so many. Uh, Great books. And last year it was actually hard. I tried to make this top 10 list. And we love these kinds of lists and ranking people and those kinds of things, comparing people, things. Uh, But I just think it's an interesting time to reflect on some of the books that I read. I, I had to go back and revise the list and narrow it down. It was hard to just pick 10, but I'll share them with you. And they're not ranked in order, but they're ranked in chronology of when I read them last year. So let's go through the top 10 books from 2020. So the first book, and it does feel like a while ago that I read this book, it was I think back in January of 2020, is Crib Sheet by Emily Oster. And it was a really great book. She basically looks at, she's an economist, but looking at all the research from the time your baby is born up until preschool. I recommended it to my cousin, Pega, who just recently had uh, a baby. And she actually told me she uh, read it and and found it very interesting. But what I I like about her approach in Crib Sheet is it's actually not going to tell you exactly what to do, which I know we're looking for a lot of times. But she shares the research and basically describes and discusses what the research is showing, let's say for breastfeeding or, um, you know, having your child uh, have in daycare or not, and shows you the differences that have been found. And then you make your own decision. Because yes, there are at times ideal ways to do things. But what can be unfortunate is sometimes we think the ideal is the best for us when it might not be. For example, if, you know, we find that daycare might not be the best option at a certain age, but If you don't have the child in daycare, and let's say both parents can't work, financially you struggle so much that it creates more stress and more turmoil and lots of problems, the best option for you might be to actually have your child in daycare but you need to go look at the research to see how much of a difference it is. Yes, ideally we do certain things, but we wanna make sure we're looking at what the differences are. Maybe the research shows that it's not that big of a difference, but in your family, it makes a big difference. And what I thought her approach, Emily Oster in the book Crip Sheet, what I liked was that it really left it in your hands to decide what is the best for your family. Cause often the case isn't that it's a one size fits all type of a thing the second book on the list is race after technology by ruha benjamin and uh this book you know i I enjoy books that i read but sometimes books give me kind of a paradigm shift or introduce something that i had not thought about before and so in this book race after technology dr benjamin explores how different aspects of how technology including ai social media these kinds of things may actually perpetuate and contribute to racism Um, and so what we have to be careful of is because if we think well we're making an algorithm or we're making a technology it's a racial it's you know post-racial if you want to use that term but race can't be an issue we have to remember that human beings are the ones um, that are making the technologies. So for example, they had a beauty contest that was gonna be judged by computers and AI. And so it's like, okay, this is unbiased. But then they found that almost all of them were white. I think all but one, or I don't remember the exact numbers, but overwhelming number uh, had certain types of features. And then they realized, well, because they were having the technology learn from certain images what is beautiful. And so that skewed the direction that it went into. Or if you look at crime statistics, when there's already racism baked into how things are done, well, then those statistics, when they try to create algorithms for where you should look for crime, are just going to perpetuate those types of racist ideas or racism. And so it was interesting for me to see that something that we think of as uh, neutral when it comes to race, because it's human beings making it, it's not going to be that way. And so in that book, Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin, she did a great job of of, uh, outlining the ways that that is the case. Book number three, The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. This is kind of makes me laugh now because my cousin Pega teased me that it was such a nerdy sounding book. And it kind of is, but I loved it. The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. Um, You know, we think of intelligence and we love to think of humans as so intelligent. And we are in some ways, but it's also we sometimes don't recognize the ways other animals are very intelligent in ways way beyond us. And so the um, This book did a great job of showing different ways that some birds can be smart from problem solving. Crows, you know, we sometimes think of crows as these uh, dark animals or they're harbingers of n- negative things, but they're actually quite intelligent and they're even able to do multi-step problem solving, which is amazing. Also, the ways that birds navigate, you know, let's say traveling uh, south for the winter and those things and how they, have these incredible kind of gps using multiple different ways some of which we still don't understand but it was really fascinating to to read this book and it makes you in that way maybe even have more compassion for birds just like when we learn about You know, it's funny, we usually think of humanity because we think of different peoples, but really just the uh, value or that, you know, these beings have so much going on. We might just think, oh, it's just, you know, even we think of, uh, she talks about in the book, bird brain means someone's stupid, but we see that birds are quite intelligent in ways that we can't, um, you know, be. So it gives you a certain value to them and recognize that we sometimes don't even see the value that something has because we can't even understand what it's doing in some way. So that was The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. The next book, number four, Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. This was quite a, a hefty read. It was over a thousand pages, but it was also very enlightening, um, as he explains in the book, looking throughout history. But throughout history, we've seen inequality. And then there's these ideologies, that's why it's in the title, that help to justify the ideology. Well, so why does the king have so much wealth while all the peasants are so poor, let's say? Well, it's because the king is, you know, brought to us from God and essentially is God manifested on earth so how could we not give the king so much wealth and if you challenge that you're challenging God and you're challenging everything and we can kill you for even questioning that and so when we think back to something like that hundreds or thousands of years ago or thousand years ago you might think that sounds stupid but there's the same types of ideologies that pervade currently that allow for inequality to persist at the levels that it does and we justify it for example oh it's a meritocracy so if there is these huge gaps in wealth, it's only based on how hard people have tried or how much they've contributed when that's not really the case. And he also shows how different levels and degrees of taxation don't necessarily have the same outcomes that people always think. So I learned a lot uh, about economics in that book um, from Thomas Piketty and Capital and Ideology. Highly recommend that book number five and again these are just in chronological order of when i read them the deviance war by eric Cervini. Uh, this book for me was very eye-opening because it looked at the legal battles that took place related to homosexuality including uh i hope i'm remembering the name right frank frank kameny k-a-m-e-n-y and he was a m- part of the military as a scientist but then because he was found to potentially be homosexual he was Got arrested in a a bathroom um, that was known for uh, gay men meeting each other in a clandestine way. Um, It then became a whole court case. And it was very eye opening to see that in Congress or in these high um, uh, levels of government or what we think of as very formal areas, they're thinking about certain things and this was just maybe 50 years ago, 40 years ago, was so backwards to what we think now. And first to just understand the history of homosexuality in a legal standpoint was very interesting, very detailed book in that sense. Um, But also a reminder that we have to look at what's happening in our own day and age and recognize so many things that sound so official don't necessarily have a lot of intellectual weight behind them or don't necessarily have a moral standing, which I think is so important because I've always seen this, you can read throughout history, people talking about the ugliest things, but in the most intelligent sounding language. You know, there's people defending slavery around the time of the civil war that were very intellectual and presented in these quote unquote proofs that it was such a a good thing and why it was even noble to do such a thing. Um, But it was, of course, very stupid and very wrong and very immoral, inhumane, but it was said in such an uppity kind of a way that makes it seem like they're superior in some way when they're not. And so that same thing is happening in our day and age, something we have to be aware of. Just because something is presented in smart language doesn't mean the idea is smart or moral. So that was the deviance war number six. Disability Visibility, edited by Alice Wong. So this book had contributions from various individuals with different types of disabilities sharing their experiences. And so it was like, 20 more close to I think 30 different small chapters written by uh, each individual and each chapter was really opening my eyes to aspects of individuals experiencing disability that I was not aware of. Uh, really um, in in my show I've talked about this quite you know embarrassingly I didn't talk too much about disability until uh, the first book was um, Judith Heumann's book I was kind of between the two uh, human uh, being human. Um, And then this book, Disability Visibility, which I learned about because of uh, Judith Heumann, uh, and I didn't talk much about that. And so I always try to talk about different aspects of life, of humanity, that we might not be thinking about or not talk about enough and sometimes get ignored. And it's really unfair and as heartbreaking as I read these stories and experiences and how much I got to learn and how much I realized I did not um, factor certain things into account of how individuals with disability might experience things. And also realizing that all human beings, yes, to degrees that can be very different, but we all will experience disability in some way in our life, especially as we age. So uh, thinking of disability as just some group really misses that it's part of the human experience and part of all all of our human experiences. So that book was very eye-opening in that way. The next book is a classic, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, Uh, a short but very powerful book. Sadly, although the book was written something like half a century ago and is about race and racism in the United States, so much of what was in the book is still very relevant now and that's very heartbreaking, you would hope would have advanced so much that um, it would not really be the case that a book could be so relevant. But James Baldwin is an incredible writer, read two of his books. The other one was Giovanni's Room, which is a novel. Um, But i highly recommend watching him speak such a powerful speaker but you feel that power in his writing as well so i hope you'll read that the fire next time by james baldwin number eight is seven and a half lessons about the brain by lisa feldman barrett Uh, another actually short book but so insightful and it came out this year a new book highly highly recommend it Um, lisa feldman barrett is a neuroscientist And she really shares some important insights that almost on a daily basis still affect ways I'm thinking about things. Uh, For example, that the brain is a predicting machine rather than a thinking machine. seen that before but the way she expresses that and explains that is really interesting when you think of so many things in our lives that when you go somewhere it makes sense that the things related to that environment are easier for you to think of or for example if you're talking to a friend all of a sudden a lot of memories about them might come that you wouldn't be able to think of without seeing them because the brain is in a way predicting what it's going to need and what it's going to need to do Uh, but that's just one of the lessons I talked about uh the development of the child, how our brains socially uh, are important, and also how we affect one another. And she had this really beautiful uh, passage where she said texting her friend in Belgium, I love you, could actually affect her friend's heart rate and the way her her friend was feeling just from a few words that she was sending them. She would literally affect her friend's physiology, uh, showing that also our brain and our body, we try to separate them. really. There's so much uh, intertwined when we think about that. So that that book, I really loved, uh, a short but very insightful book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Book number nine, White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Loved this book. Um, It was a a work of fiction, I think the only one on the list this year. Um, But I really enjoyed the book, uh, you know, And that's why I actually wanted to read. I'm reading a book by Marcel Proust this week. Uh, I want to read at least a few books of fiction a year at minimum. And this book, as I've talked about before, how we think, well, you learn from nonfiction and fiction is just stories. But through stories of good writers, we learn a lot about life and really what makes life important. So I love this book from, I think it's about close to 20 years old, Uh, but I, I hope you'll check it out, White Teeth by Zadie Smith and I said, um, you know, it teaches you a lot about life. The last book was uh, number 10 is Mortality by Christopher Hitchens. So we learn a lot about life and a big part of life or one that we can't, and none of us can avoid is death. And it was a intense read, very dark and sad at times in a way you see Christopher Hitchens sharing his experience of finding out he has cancer and as he gets closer to death and in a way didn't really even finish but the book was a compilation of different articles he had written during that time for Vanity Fair and it's heartbreaking to see him go through that but I do think it's important that we can't ignore death and actually to really value life we have to respect the reality of death that we have to acknowledge that we won't be around forever and because of that we should value the days we have and I also think that we should value those around us more recognizing we don't know how much longer you will have not a very pleasant thought to have but a real one and one that yes we try to deny or avoid because it doesn't feel very good but one that I think is important to remind ourselves of and sometimes we don't take our lives seriously enough until we realize there will be a time where we will no longer be here and um that book which i read close to the end of the year really was great at giving me some um, thoughts and insights to think about about the topic of death so that was mortality by christopher hitchens which wraps up the books of the week from 2020 I'm so happy. It's been now four years that I've done the books of the week, which means it's over 200 books since the start of 2017, which I'm so grateful for, to be honest, that I made that New Year's goal back then that turned into this concept for the show as well. Uh, I've gotten to learn a lot from the books and uh, forever grateful for that. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Now, on this show, I talk about social issues that definitely overlaps with political issues, but I do try not to be too political because that's not my area of expertise. But sometimes events happen that are too big to ignore. I feel like I should not ignore. And what happened last week, January 6th, here in the United States was one of those types of events that's going to be famous or really infamous in American history, I believe. A very sad day when the capital of the United States was attacked, essentially, by Americans. And uh, you have seen the results. Several people died as a result, which is very sad. And also just what was happening was uh, a sign of some very disheartening things about what's going on in the United States. And so uh, I don't want to make it too much about picking sides, but um, any type of like attack like that is not okay. But what I think you also see on full display, unfortunately, is how divided we are as a country with what's been going on. And I think that's very scary. And when you have division, it inevitably leads to more conflict, especially when you have division where the two sides can't see eye-to-eye or almost don't want to see eye-to-eye, which is what you are seeing right now, and it's really heartbreaking. So we've been talking about this for a long time, but how much the two sides of the political aisle right now can't even agree, close to agree, on the facts of, of what is going on. And so carrying forward some of what this book, The School of Life, that I talked about today, one of the things that he, uh, I say he, but really it's all the authors, I guess, writing together. But they talk about, in a way, seeing that people, even when they act out in ways that we don't like or hurts us, it's coming from a place of hurt within themselves. Now, to be very clear, this does not justify or excuse someone hurting someone else but it's trying to help to understand. And those sometimes get confused when we talk about understanding or we talk about excusing because they seem the same. So if someone says, well, let's try to understand why Hitler became the way he did and the Holocaust happened, some people will say even trying to understand Hitler is itself insensitive because you are justifying or saying maybe what he did makes sense. It's not to say that what he did, of course, is okay in any way, shape, or form. It's saying that we wanna try to understand it because it happened, and also because we wanna understand how to prevent it from happening again. And unless we take a closer look at it, we won't actually get to learn from it and move forward. So to me, when we look back on these issues, even if you say someone did something horrendous, Trying to understand it doesn't mean that it's okay. It's actually because we don't want to take those lives lost, for example, from the Holocaust for granted. We don't want to just say it was one event. Hitler was so unique in human history. It's never going to happen again. It never happened before, and that's it. And not to compare atrocities, but there have been, of course, other genocides, other dictators that have done horrible things. So when we look back at the actions of someone and try to understand them, We're not saying they were okay. We're saying actually it was so wrong, we want to make sure it doesn't happen again. And To me, what happened Wednesday at the Capitol was like that. It was something horrible, but we have to understand what is going on. And Of course, I'm not here to tell you I know and I understand completely, but I do think a big part of what we're seeing is the divisiveness that's been going on in this country. And so, of course, whether whatever side you're on, you're going to probably be pointing the finger at the other side. But I do hope to encourage people. I know it's a very cliche, easy thing to say of let's all come together. Let's understand one another. But to genuinely do this, um, to try to think, well, what is going on? Why are we so far apart in understanding what's happening? Yes, I do think there is a big part let's say of social media and the way information is being transmitted which is a a big issue people really do live in different worlds I I see people talk about the same event um, on social media and it is so different you can't imagine it's the same event now as a therapist sometimes couples come in and they'll tell me about the same fight and they'll have different perspectives but not in the way we're seeing with Uh, what's happening in America today. People have such different perspectives because they're being fed different things. So if I tell you a hundred times, this guy is nice, this guy is nice. Here's something he did nice. Here's something he did. Or if I show you, here's something of him doing something horrible, horrible, something horrible. Of course, it's going to affect what you think of that person. And we're living in that type of a world. Or when it comes to any kind of policy, this policy is, oh, it's socialism, it's communism, or it's, unfair in this way, or it's unfair in that way. It's very sad, but we can't even agree on the information. And so not that you say if you to, to say if to change your point of view. But what I hope we can all do is recognize that you might not be as right as you think you are. And that's something, again, can relate to some of this humanistic realism that I was talking about in the book today, that we'd like to think we're so right because, oh, I I thought about it. And of course, if I'm thinking about it, I'm so logical and smart. I only hold perspectives that are absolutely true. Well, I'm here to tell you that you don't, because I don't either. I have biases, I have ways that I want the world to be, I have things that influence the ways that I think about things that I don't even know about yet. I try to become more aware, but I don't know. So as much as you think you know, you have to accept that you might not know. What I think is amazing is you know, Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty, I talked about that as one of my books of the year. He talks about things and he's a PhD economist, but there's other PhD level economists that disagree with him. And so even they will disagree. Yet you'll see someone post on Facebook that they know exactly how tax policy needs to be. And they're 100% certain of it. And anyone who disagrees with them is stupid. But we have Nobel Prize winning economists that might disagree on the same topic. But yet somehow you are so sure. Uh, Or opening schools or doing whatever with COVID, how to handle it. We have all these doctors, public health experts, different individuals trying to figure things out and yet people think they know exactly how to figure it out. So we have to accept that we don't really know and that's okay because it's better to recognize what you don't know than to think you know something that you actually don't. I would rather someone tell me you know I'm not so sure about that than to hear them tell me I know exactly how to whatever, fill in the blank. I don't actually get attracted to that type of mindset that I know exactly how to do this thing or that thing, or I know the solution to something that hundreds or thousands of people in a certain field are still trying to figure out. So as hard as it can be, take a step back and realize I don't necessarily know as much as I think I do. Not only that, and maybe even it's a further step back, but recognize how biased the information you are getting is. It feels so much more comfortable to hear the type of news that agrees with what we already think and believe. So most of us stay in that echo chamber, stay in that comfort zone, in that bubble of hearing the same types of things this guy or this girl is bad, or this guy or girl is good, or this party is good, this party is bad. And we keep staying there because it feels good to hear, oh, let me see, what did that person do that I don't like that was bad? Yep, look how bad he is. Or look at this great person, same event, but then look at it in a positive way. And you get, of course, a very different response from that. So we have to be a little bit more aware of the type of information we're taking in, Uh, It's tough. How do we know what the reliable sources are? There's some ways to be aware of that, but also just to recognize if we're only getting one source or one type of source, we are inevitably getting a biased opinion because unfortunately, in a type of, you know, I mentioned capital and ideology, but when it comes to spreading information, the market isn't going to choose the best information or the most truthful information. It's going to choose the information that attracts the most attention which is going to be more provocative is going to be exaggerated is going to have a certain slant to it because the more balanced truth usually is a little bit more boring. And that's unfortunate because as the market works and social media is just based on, well, what makes the most clicks? It's controversial things. It's extreme things. It's things that make people feel good or make them outraged. And people are clicking on those types of things and it's becoming more popular. And so we're seeing this hyper polarization because we're not just getting slightly different facts. We're getting two different worlds of facts. So as an individual yourself, yes. You can talk about how crazy the other side is till the cows come home, but also recognize how biased am I in what I think and what I think I know. And let me see if I hear some of the other news from different perspectives, what type of a consensus will I get to? Because, again, this will be a kind of a kumbaya cheesy type of a thing. Yes, what they did and what we saw on Wednesday was completely unacceptable, horrible, Um, I do have some thoughts on how it came about that I might even talk about on Wednesday, but I won't get into it with just a few minutes left on today's show. Uh, It it was horrible and very, very sad. It really makes me sad just to think that that was happening um, in our country. I do love this country very much. I've only known this country as far as being born and lived in this country, but there's a lot I recognize as good about it there's also a lot I recognize can be better about it. Another one of those things that people make black and white, either you have to love America and think everything about it is good, or if you don't, that means you hate America. But no, if you actually love something, you can recognize how it can be better. Um, So I recognize there's a lot of good here, but there's also a lot of bad. But I know that the only way we're gonna come together is to recognize that the other side, especially when we're talking about half of the country, isn't just crazy, stupid, immoral. Are there extremes in any kind of group? Absolutely, and that's what we saw on display last week. But the overwhelming majority of people are not just immoral, crazy people. They are good people who might have certain biases that are different from your biases, so it's not just that they're biased, but they're different from the ones you have or different types of perspectives. And so they've been fed into this echo chamber that's made them come very far apart from you. But the only way we ever come together is by saying, I want to try to see the world through your eyes, which means I can think that there might be some reason that what you think can make sense. I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt that if people that uh, are Respectable and different professions can think certain things, there might be something there. Again, you don't have to agree, but at least try to understand. If you're pro-life, if you can't tell me, if you tell me you can't understand someone who's pro-choice, then I don't think you really understand even what pro-life is, and vice versa, if you're pro-choice and can't understand why someone would be pro-life given their perspectives and their ideas, I'm not sure you really understand what abortion is even about or what we're talking about here. So understanding does not have to mean agreement. This is no matter we're talking about in the political sphere or if you're in a relationship. If you're talking to your husband and wife, you might not agree with them, but you have to try to at least understand them. And the only way we're going to get anywhere is by understanding. We're not going to get rid of all the people you think are stupid and immoral or whatever you think they are. You're not going to change their mind, all of them, to think differently. We're going to have to accept that we are different and different can be okay, and different can coexist, but different has to at least respect each other and be open to hearing the other side. The type dialog is essentially dead in this country. People of opposing views. They won't even talk period but if they do it's just yelling at each other or having a comment war on some social media where they're going back and forth nothing productive happens and they're just yelling at each other or yelling using uh typing basically to make each other feel bad look bad you're uneducated every time i look at comments you're uneducated or stupid or crazy and again it's because we're not recognizing we're a little bit of all those things ourselves too We're sometimes misinformed, we're sometimes biased, we're sometimes a little bit crazy. And so rather than pointing the finger and thinking everyone else is bad and I'm good, to me that sounds actually the most crazy of all, to think you figured everything out. To me that's pretty insane, to think you know everything about economics, public health, every type of public policy, you know it. I I really don't trust anyone that thinks that they figured it all out so recognize that maybe you're wrong it could be hard and a bitter pill to swallow to even recognize that maybe we don't know it all and to let go of how hard we believe certain things and to also recognize that if millions of people believe something doesn't mean they're right millions of people have thought stupid things before too i'm not going to deny that but at least i try to understand how they got to where they got to try to understand that these are people too these are human beings more Likely than not, they have good reasons for at least getting to where they got to. And let's give them that benefit of the doubt. And I really hope that it's still, you know, the smoke is still settling from what happened last week and a lot is still going to happen. But maybe, not that it means it was okay that it happened, it'll be a wake-up call to recognize that we are getting so divided that we're going to kill ourselves essentially we're going to tear ourselves apart and I hope we'll turn towards each other rather than trying to pull away from each other which won't work all right that brings us to the end of tonight's show I actually got to be joined by Farhuda here in the studio we hope Amir feels better you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui have a wonderful night